This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Eating healthy and being physically active are choices that everyone has to make every day, but some people face barriers that mean it's not so easy. Researchers say Hispanic and Latino adults are genetically susceptible to obesity and higher insulin resistance, both of which make them more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. But sociocultural factors like lower income and access to education and health care push the needle against them. Half of all Hispanic and Latino adults will develop the disease during their lifetimes, and they're more likely to have complications than other groups. So joining us now to talk through why this happens and how to support a healthier lifestyle is Dr. Arshia Baig. She's a primary care physician at UChicago Medicine. Welcome to Reset, Dr. Baig. Thank you so much for having me. A 50% chance of developing type 2 diabetes. That's scary, doctor. Yes. uh, I think type 2 diabetes uh, is really um, an epidemic in the U.S. Yeah. How does that compare to the average risk in this country? Sure. So among adults in the U.S., about 10 to 11 percent have type 2 diabetes or have diabetes. Uh-huh. Uh, but when we look at race ethnicity, we see how it's disparate. So among non-Hispanic whites, about 8 percent have diabetes, whereas among people of color, their rates are very high. So among Hispanics, per the CDC, about 17 percent have diabetes. Wow, yeah. So we'll get into the the cultural factors there in a moment, but talk more about the genetic predispositions there. Sure. Well, with diabetes, I mean, I think the thought is there's definitely some genetic component, which we are still learning more about. There are different types of diabetes, type 1, type 2. There's gestational diabetes. Uh, They're all a little bit different um, in terms of how we treat them and who we see those diseases in, those conditions in. Uh, But I think thinking about sort of the structural inequities is actually really important, too, in terms of thinking about prevalence of diabetes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm also curious how this contributes to complications that a person may have with diabetes, if they are Hispanic or Latino. Right. So... Once you have diabetes, it's really important to control your blood sugar, to control your cholesterol, um, your high blood pressure, if you have high blood pressure as well. And it's those factors that long-term can cause complications. So complications like kidney disease, eye disease, heart disease, stroke. So let's talk about those cultural factors um, that we, we hinted at before. What did those include? So some of the structural factors, I would say, are, you know, we're always telling our patients, please, you know, eat a healthy diet, fresh fruits and vegetables. But we see in some communities the quality of food is not there or it's not affordable, it's not accessible. We also advise our patients who are at risk and who have diabetes to exercise, be active, but we don't necessarily provide safe spaces or green spaces for people to be active. Um, Mm. I think part of it's also access to care. So if you're at risk for diabetes or pre-diabetes, go see your primary care provider. Well, that's important, but then maybe access is an issue, insurance is an issue. And I would say... That's assuming you have a primary care doctor. Exactly. And one whom you trust... And one maybe who understands your 
culture and maybe speaks your language. So among Latinos who are maybe more comfortable speaking in Spanish, are they able to communicate with their primary care team? Mm -hmm. Are they able to get the education and the counseling that they want in Spanish or that is tailored to their culture or the foods that are accessible to them or that they're used to eating? So in a case like this, cultural competency, as you described it, seems highly important. I think it's necessary. Exactly. And I think that it's also patient centered. So just because you're Hispanic or from a certain country of origin doesn't necessarily mean that we can make generalizations, I would say. So asking patients, well, you know, what what are the foods that you like to eat? What types of exercise do you like to do? Um, do you, how about your family? Do you eat meals together? Uh, who's at home? What kind of work do you do? Are you able to prepare foods at home? So I think that patient-centered conversation is important and also knowing to tailor the conversation to, to the needs of your patients. How have you seen these uh, sociocultural factors impact uh, a Hispanic or Latino child's likelihood of developing the disease? And I know your work focuses on adults, but just from your expertise, what would you say are maybe some examples of how we can see that from you know a very young age? Yeah, I mean, I think it gets back to some of these structural factors of um, are kids eating like ultra highly processed foods? Are they having access to places where they can um, be active uh, safely. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think maybe it comes down to sort of the social and familial and community environment also. And, you know, so the work that I've done uh, mostly here at Little Village, you know, working with churches and providing diabetes education, we were focused on adults. And it was great because um, we were hearing from many of our participants that they were taking what they were learning and making changes at home. So That's great. Cooking healthier, cutting out the salt, decreasing the amount of sugary drinks. So I think thinking about everyone, no one is in a sterile environment. Yeah. We're all in, in society, in a community, in a family, you know, and so thinking about sort of like intergenerational effect, I think is important. And just in doing research to, to prepare to talk with you, doctor, I'm, of course, looking at terms, you know, related to type 2 diabetes, but also coming across pre-diabetes. Can you help with that distinction? What's the difference? Yeah. So pre-diabetes, so I'll say about one in three Americans have pre-diabetes. Now that is separate from actually having diabetes. It puts you at risk. So your blood sugar is a little bit elevated, but not to the point of having a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Okay. And, you know, and once, you know, let's say you get screened and there's sometimes community screenings going on or even in your primary care providers clinic. Uh, If you do have prediabetes, there's actually the reason to get screened is so you can prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. Okay. So that's where you start modifying your diet, being more active, trying to get into healthy weight range. Mm -hmm. So talk more about the screening process, doctor. What is screening for type 2 diabetes actually look like? I mean, from your standpoint, what are the symptoms you're looking for? Sure. So folks can have symptoms um, that can be being very thirsty, urinating a lot, maybe losing weight, fatigue. The goal is to hopefully 
get someone diagnosed before they start having those symptoms. So there are risk factors for having prediabetes or diabetes. Uh, those would include um, having a family history, so parents or brothers or sisters who have diabetes, uh, being overweight or obese, uh, not being you know as physically active as you'd want to be, mm-hmm. um, and then also people of color have high rates of diabetes. So if you have those risk factors, um, you know consider talking to your primary care doc to get screened. There's blood tests that can be done to screen for prediabetes and diabetes. Yeah, and, and as a, a primary care physician, walk us through some more of the, you know, the cultural considerations that you are just actively making when you're talking to your patients about diabetes. Because, I mean, depending on who's sitting in front of you in your office, what are the, the, you know, what are the, what's the line of questioning like? Mm -hmm. What are you immediately thinking? Yeah. So, again, I use a very patient-centered approach. So asking patients first if they're either at risk or type 2 diabetes, depending, you know, where they are. Um, sort of talking about sort of the ramifications, right? So if they're pre-diabetes, well, let's focus on preventing type 2 diabetes and let's put a plan together and, you know, check your blood sugar every year. Um, and then thinking about diet, so nutrition. So what kinds of foods do they like eating? Uh, what kind of activities do they like eating or like doing? So if they like walking, great, that's a great activity, you know, um, and talking about diet. Well, maybe there are some changes that we can make, but really based on like what they like to eat, mm-hmm. right? And I think my approach is not telling people to stop doing something, right? But maybe we can cut back or maybe we can add fresh fruits and vegetables. Maybe That's probably we, more effective. Yeah. Or maybe we could, you know, walk a little bit. It doesn't have to be 30 minutes a day. It can be 10 minutes broken up. Uh, so, and I think in terms of like cultural factors, like, you know, some folks have seen diabetes in their family mm-hmm. um, or they're like, oh no, does this mean that maybe I can't eat the foods I love? Like, Do you find that that prompts people to come to you? They've seen other family members going through it and they think, doctor, am I at risk? Yes, people do. What should I be doing now? Right, exactly. And that's where, you know, um, we can do the screening, we can talk about it and hopefully um, assess if they're at risk and then start the diet and exercise, the uh, lifestyle changes. Yeah. Well, you know, you talk about the, the diet and exercise recommendations and I'm thinking back to the point you made earlier about access being an issue, um, especially, you know, in in communities of color. How do you ask patients to add more fruits and veggies to their diet if they simply don't have access to that? That's a great question. And, you know, um, so there are programs out there um, in order to, like, get fresh fruits and vegetables. So, like, a lot of health centers have actually um, farmers markets and such, um, and, you know, a lot of the – so a lot of the work that I do that I've done in Little Village has been working with people in the community. Mm-hmm. So even when we – in our diabetes education classes, we had culturally tailored food, so uh, recipes that we modified to be a little bit healthier. Uh, we're mostly working with Mexican-Americans, so it was Mexican-American foods that were um, tailored to the community – healthier. But we made sure that the foods that we were talking about were accessible in the community, that you'd be able to buy the ingredients that you need mm-hmm. in the community. So um, so I think working with community members and community resources is actually really important. Are you ever met with resistance or, or like uh, pushback to some of your rec- recommendations of folks that simply don't want to make the change? I would say that people want to make a change, but it can be challenging, right? I mean, there's transportation, 
also, right? So maybe you have to like leave your neighborhood to go get fruits and vegetables. And Mm -hmm. that's a challenge, you know? Um, So then we talk about, well, maybe frozen vegetables are a good option that don't have salt in them, you know? So I think that tailoring with your patients and understanding maybe transportation is an issue for them or maybe cost is an issue or maybe food prep is an issue. And I think it also comes back to that education piece. Maybe they just simply don't know or understand the, the ramifications. Yeah, potentially. And so when I ask people, like, what do you like to eat? Then I can sort of start the conversation there. Yeah. Have you seen uh, or how have you seen rather diabetes or prediabetes impact how a person might react or recover from something like COVID? Oh, so... Because we saw disparities there as well, right? Yeah, we did. So folks with chronic conditions, so including diabetes, have a higher risk of complications from COVID and hospitalizations. So uh, the good thing is there are now medications to help treat COVID. Um, So those folks are at higher risk and hopefully can get access to that medication or Mm -hmm. medications. Um, Interestingly enough, we also saw that there's some folks who maybe were at risk for developing diabetes and after COVID they developed diabetes. And that's sort of the new line of research that's happening to understand that mechanism. Interesting. Well, you know, diabetes, of course, it doesn't just affect Hispanic and Latino adults. So you've got the ears of everyone right now. What suggestions do you have for folks listening, doctor, uh, that would lower their risk for diabetes or that could lower their risk for diabetes? Yeah, you know, I I think it comes back to lifestyle. Um, And I think trying to uh, eat fresh fruits and vegetables, high fiber foods, trying to stay away from processed foods and sugary drinks, um, fast food. Um, I think trying to be active in the ways that you can be active. So be it gardening or walking or, you know, do the, or dancing, do the things that you like to do. Yeah. And I think, and if you're at risk based on, you know, family history or, you know, the other factors that we talked about um, in terms of weight and such, you know, talk to your primary care doc and see if you can get screened for prediabetes or diabetes uh, or, you know, before COVID, there used to be lots of community events where they would screen people, you know, maybe those are coming back. So I think uh, screening and um, healthy living within your means. Yeah, we'll leave it there. Dr. Arshia Beg is a primary care physician at UChicago Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. Great tips. Great. Thank you.